Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and here with Scott Horowitz today, Chief Revenue Officer of YouGov Sports, and going to look forward to talking to him today a little bit about data, uh, big data, understanding uh, how it's used, where it comes from, um, and then a couple of his uh, journey stops along the way in his career in the sports industry. Um, we'll dive in. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, I got to start off with, um, I haven't personally met anyone that's worked for the Harlem Globetrotters before. <laughs> so let's start there because how do you get a job like that? And then you were there for three plus years. I mean, what was that like? Yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun, actually. That was my first, um, call it, you know, career job in sports and entertainment. And um, oddly enough, I actually got it by just applying for it, which doesn't really happen these days, right? That, that's kind of an, an unheard of thing. So I was coming out of a, a stint in the broadcasting industry, having worked in radio stations and, uh, you know, marketing directors, selling ads for radio stations, was on-air talent, production, did, did a little bit of everything because came up in a small market for radio. And uh, we, we had done some marketing for the Globetrotters when they came to town. And, you know, it's basically like selling them ads and doing promotions on air to give away tickets to go to the game and saw a uh, opening that they had and, and applied. And in my cover letter, I said, listen, I, you know, got experience sitting across the table from you guys and know how far you can push. Uh, you know, let me, let me push uh, as hard as possible without being offensive to your media partners on the other side of the table and see what we can do. And they said, yeah, that's great. Come on board. And um, so I did that and I just came in. I think it was like the, uh, the right time, you know, right, right time, right place and <clears throat> came in during an ownership change and I put a couple of really creative, uh, you know, partnerships together in local markets where, you know, with tax companies, our season ran from or our tour ran from end of December to beginning of May, which is tax season. Right. So I did some promotions where if you came in and got your tax refund done at a Jackson Hewitt or something, you got two tickets to the Globetrotters. So our ownership team, uh, new ownership team at the time, really, really liked that type of stuff and said, let's let's build out a sponsorship department because we didn't really have one at the time. Um, all of our sponsorships were done top to top, CEO to CEO, and it was kind of a friends and family thing and there was no real rhyme or reason behind it. So they said, we're going to pick you up out of, out of buying ads and doing marketing from team to moving you into the sponsorship space. And um, so I did that for a few years and, and it was a blast, man. It was a really fun job. Um, a bit like Groundhog Day because it's it's a tour and it's a show, right? So it's kind of like working for the circus in a in a way where it's a traveling show. Um, it is you know scripted, obviously, so you'd see the same thing over and over and over again. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, players are all great. the The product is awesome, and not until many years later after working there, because I had my first child when I was there towards the end of my my stop there. But not until many years later did I really um, kind of feel the the proud parent taking your kid to, to this type of a thing once I took my boys to, to go see the Globetrotters. Um, and, and then I got it, right? So I wish I would have, have had those kids earlier so that I, I would have been able to appreciate it more. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, I got it by just just applying randomly, which was, uh, you know, that's kind of unheard of. I, I think I haven't applied for another job since. and Everything since then has been recruitment-based. But um, but yeah, that was my my first step into it. And there's it's such a... a a famed history and it, it's so great you know when you think about all the things that they've accomplished over the years and still love going to it and, and seeing it when it when it comes to town and it's it's a fantastic uh, property to work for yeah it's one of those things where everyone's got a different story everyone's got a different start right and to just know that you're in you know the data sponsorship 
world because of the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Like almost no one would put the two and two together, right? And yeah. go, you know, that's it, what you're going to do. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting like step into it because when I look back at my like, college career, right? Like I could barely get through my accounting classes and, you know, all the business classes that are required for a major. And, you know, I was not an analytics person. And I remember coming out of a meeting, uh, we were pitching the hotel category. I always felt like hotels was really the place for the Globetrotters or anything in the travel category, right? We were on the road so many days a year with our players and our, our staff spending a fortune. I was like, there's got to be a hotel deal, an airline deal, a luggage deal, something, right, for us to have as a sponsor. And we were pitching uh, Choice Hotels, which, you know, owns a bunch of properties. And then we were pitching Wyndham and we were trying to get Marriott and all these guys. And we came out of our meeting uh, with Choice Hotels and the guy walked us out of the meeting and he said, listen, we really want to do this deal, but we've got to present to our franchise board that this is going to put heads in beds, right? I need numbers to support the fact that sponsoring the Globetrotters is going to increase room nights. And literally, as we were walking to the car from that meeting, after hearing that, the email came in from the guys at Wyndham saying basically the same thing. We're going to need some research that proves that your fans stay in our hotels and that, you know, it makes sense. And that was really my first exposure to research in sports was, well, we got to go out and conduct a research study. So let's go, right? And we, we were able to procure a research study. We had very, very limited budget. Um, I was able to convince our CEO, like, just give me 10 grand, 15 grand, and I will deliver you a half a million dollar deal per year for the next several years if I can just get the research because we've got two interested parties. Um, and he gave me the money to do it, and we, we did it. We hired a firm to do it. And that was kind of my first step into the analytics space was like selling sponsorships with data to support your kind of pitch versus selling the dream was night and day. I mean, we, we leveraged one study multiple times being able to continue to, to push and push and push and get more, uh, more deals done off of one segmentation study. No, it's, it's interesting to hear that story, right? And to understand where that all came from and knowing how the sponsorship world has progressed today with all of the data and the analytics that's behind it. It's really, really, really hard to sell a sponsorship nowadays on that dream, right? On that vision. Um, you have to have something to back it up. And, and even in a different space like tourism, right, where you want to bring an event to Arizona, right, to Phoenix. Well, if you're going to get all of the different constituents involved, they're going to want to know that same thing. How many heads and beds? How many people are coming here? How many fans? All, all of the data that's needed to support decision making, so crucial. So as you know, we fast forward a little bit through your career how did the data come into play when you spent some uh, some good chunk of time at the Suns on the sponsorship side, you know, from a basketball perspective um, and doing a lot of probably different deals in that sense, dealing with a lot of different categories? Yeah, it was a much different kind of deal, right? Like with the Globetrotters, a half a million dollar deal was a great deal for us. You know, 300 grand would have been a great deal for us. Uh, but when you're dealing with an NBA franchise with such a great story like the Suns, Phoenix, basketball, all of it, it was you know, it was big. Um, the story is, is different. You need a little bit more ammunition, a little bit more firepower, right? So we were dealing with a host of, of data inputs that we needed to provide back to our partners. So whether that be how much time did something end up on screen? So the logo evaluation stuff, the intangible valuations, community programs, um, all of that. It was all stuff that we needed to, to really, um, you know, to, to package up and send out to our partners. And so we were dealing with a lot of stats, TV ratings, we had some of our own internal metrics. We had um, all sorts of stuff that, that we were running 
um, all the time. So yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was uh, definitely a step up in terms of the the level of detail, the level of analytics um, that we put into it. We tried to pave the way um, in, in the NBA on doing some really cutting edge things. There was some stuff we did with Verizon around um, beacons and looking at people who were in the building and where they went and traffic patterns and all of that type of stuff. Um, so we had you know a lot that we were doing. I would say like taking fast forwarding to where I am now and dealing with, you know, teams across all leagues all over the world. Um, you know, I think back to the toolkit I had when I was at the Suns and it was, it was really robust. You know, we were measuring a lot of things. We we're doing primary research to go out and, you know, when it was warranted, we were doing fan studies. Um, we were doing ticket season holder, you know, season ticket holder studies, uh, doing studying everything that we can possibly get knowledge is power, right? So the more of it you've got, the, the more armed you are to make decisions. And so there was a lot more information needed, uh, you know, at an NBA team, obviously, than a property like the Globetrotters. So, uh, you know, getting that, getting our hands on it wasn't always easy, but when we did, we, we definitely maximized it. From the tool belt perspective, in terms of what data you had, sometimes when the problem arises, it's too late to go try and find the data, right? You mm -hmm. have to have the data almost before the problem arises so that when the problem pops up, it's an easy solution. How do you predict, though, what you're going to run into, what data you're going to need? I mean, that's, that's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, listen, I mean, that's the number one thing, right? It's always sometimes it's too late, you know, and there is no self self-fulfilling prophecy. I think taking regular dips of information is key. We've got, you know, a lot of teams I've seen that do, you know, a flight study after every single game and they can build a couple of questions in there for sponsorship, um, you know, after every event that they host and then they can keep tabs on it that way. I mean, we've got brand tracking tools that that we have teams working off of over here at YouGov that, you know, update every day, right? So just general brand health stuff about around sponsorship. Um, and, and that's the hard part, right? It's like, it's sometimes it is too late to know. So, you know, there is a lag on almost everything that you're going to buy. So if you're going to do custom research study, pre mid post season is pretty standard. You know, let's say that you're, you're working in the NFL, right? You've got a handful of home games every year and that's it. And by the time you get halfway through, you know, it's too late to make any directional changes. And so you have to know ahead of time, logo counting, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to get that data back to have it be accurate and correct as well. So, you know, there's always going to be this lag. Baseball has the most opportunity, obviously, to correct their season. Golf's got a great opportunity to correct their season. NASCAR does because the length of those seasons. And so when you look at, you know, coming off of a homestand in baseball, you know, how quickly can you reorganize and reshuffle the deck and course correct as needed? And so you, you have to keep an eye on that. You've got to be aware of what's going on. And I think fresh eyes on things are always helpful. Um, you know, the best people at these teams are the ones that come in from outside experience and don't have to work game day operations because then they can take a look holistically at what's going on and fix the issues that start popping up. To your point, you've got to get ahead of it. And by the time you realize there's something wrong, it, it may be too late. And from a correction standpoint, right, you meant kind of if you're in the middle of the NFL season and something's just not adding up, right, to maybe what you promised or what you're trying to deliver, that's it's something that you may not necessarily also know what's behind why, right? right. Like you got to have more data to support the why. Um, so how, how do teams, leagues, brands, I mean, there's properties, everyone's trying to have the data at their fingertips, but to have the good data um, timely, right? So that it makes sense for decision-making. That's not an easy you know, solution and probably not a cheap one either. So how do you go about it? What, obviously YouGov is one of the big players, you know, you mentioned you worked at Nielsen and RepuCom for a bit. That's obviously a big player as well. Um, 
what are kind of the main components of the data industry? Yeah, listen, I mean, there's what's the, the triangle where you can't be all three. You can't be good, fast, and cheap, right? You got to pick two is basically what it comes down to. So you're going to be fast and good. It's not cheap. Um, and cheap is relative, right? I mean, some teams have a lot bigger, you know, checkbooks to work with on these things. And the more that you can buy and have at your fingers, the better. I think, you know, the, the why is the hard part, right? Syndicated data, which is what, you know, we were working on at RefuCon and Nielsen. It's what I, I work on here. Um, as well. It tells the what, but it doesn't really get to the why. And I think kind of now post COVID shutdown of sports, the why is even more important, right? So if we think about what happened with the NFL tarps, you know, there was a lot of hype around the tarps coming in and covering the first few rows of the field and or of the stands and that's showing up on TV, but it didn't show up on TV. Well, why didn't it show up on TV at a level it was supposed to? Because where it was placed, right? If you had done some really strong media evaluation work on that, you would have known that that's not an area that shows up very often on TV. So we should probably plan for not being as successful with this as, as we maybe initially thought we would. Plus, you know, the teams don't control the broadcast. So they can't even talk to the networks and say, can you just maybe zoom out a little bit, right? It's, it's shot very, very tight. Um, so having some of those things ahead of time are ways to cut off some problems of the past. But, you know, the why is important. We do a lot of work with teams where we're digging into custom research, three, four or five questions off the back of some, some data points that we find in our syndicated data that you know lead to more questions, right? I, I worked with uh, somebody once who, who used this line all the time that research leads to more research and it's, and it's true, right? And you've got to keep digging into the why. You know, why is this not working? Why are fans not responding to it? Why are people not seeing it? Sometimes the why is obvious, right? Like we've seen some of those NFL tarps and even in baseball, the tarps where you know, the sun is shining directly on top of the stadium and it just whitewashes out. Well, that there's nothing anybody can do about that, right? That's just poor timing. But that's why sponsorship sometimes is also a gamble or a crapshoot where you don't you don't know, right? Like you can have a really good NASCAR program and then the driver you're sponsoring crashes on the third lap. Why didn't anyone see my logo? Because my car wasn't running, you know? So it really just depends, um, you know, and no matter how many logos you get on screen or whatever, if people aren't buying your product, or they're not buying your service, then all of that's a waste, right? None of it really matters anyway. So to me, you know, the, the industry is shifting a little bit away from media evaluation, which is obviously a necessity. And, and there's a lot of players in the space now that do it. It's, it's a bit of a race to the bottom to see who gets there first as far as the rates go and everything like that. But um, and that tech is getting faster as well. Um, but really consumer response data to me is, is the key here, right? It's like that can come in the form of credit card transactional data, you know, purchase data, whatever, whatever it is, you know, or just general survey data. But if you can go into someone and say, here's a true business case as to why, you know, this is working versus it's not, are we putting more people, you know, through the doors of your business? Are they buying more soda? Are they buying more beer, more cars, whatever the case may be, you know, that that's the Holy grail in my opinion is being able to actually prove that, you know, that sponsorship works from a, a tangible standpoint. Well, and you mentioned why something may not work, but there's also the flip side of why something is working. And if you figure out why it is working, then you can replicate it, you know, charge, you know, one and a half, two X, three X, whatever, once you figure that out. So mm -hmm. how do teams, properties, et cetera, figure that part out? Because there's that two sides of the neg negotiation, right? Where let's just take the example of, you know, when you were at the Suns, you're trying to sell. Then you're in the role that you're in now where you've got the data, you're trying to help either a brand get the price down to the lowest they can for the max, you know, return on investment, but also maybe the property trying to sell it at. So how do you go knowing that you've been on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we try and play the kind of independent third party truth tellers, right? So for us, you know, we, we're not an agency that steps in and helps negotiate deals. We don't broker deals. You know, we just want to give the numbers and the facts. So we have a lot of brand clients that use us for evaluation of sponsorship. So they'll say, you know, what should I pay for this? Uh, monitor it every year for me, track it so I know if it's working or not and put a whole comprehensive program together. Great. On the flip side of that, we've been hired by teams at the same exact time to measure the same exact thing. And that's obviously great for our margin because you know there's a lot of cost savings in that, but there's also a lot of benefit to keeping everybody honest and keeping everybody on the same page. And regardless of who hired us, the number would be the exact same. Our, our, um, our client servicing team, when it comes to valuations, custom research, all of that, Georgie Webb, who's on that team and, and runs that team for us, she came over with me from Nielsen um, and Repucom. I worked with her there for years. Um, she is the most honest person in the business, in my opinion. Like if you hired her to do an evaluation for you on a, you know, deal with a baseball team and you were a brand and that team hired us to do the same thing, um, the numbers would be the same, right? Like where things would start to get different is the intangibles, you know, like what's it worth to you based on the category that you're in. So when a team says, you know, I want to do an evaluation on my naming rights, that's great, right? We could set a rate card on that and tell you exactly what it would be quote unquote worth, but how is it going to get used, right? How's it going to get leveraged? How, you know, the way a car company would use a sponsorship is way different than a beer company, which is way different than a telecom, you know, all of these things. There's may, way more regulation on insurance companies than there are other industries. So the way that you use these things is different. So from a, from a tangible valuation standpoint, like for like a dollar of exposure is worth a dollar of exposure, regardless who gets it. But what's that intangible look like? And that's the difference maker, right? Because again, these, these assets are going to be worth more. Naming rights valuations are, are funny to me because they come back and you see, you know, lots of global exposure. Everyone touts, we're on the, the circuit for the Super Bowl or we're going to host an all-star game or a WrestleMania or whatever it is. You know, how much waste is in that? If I'm a local company, you know, and I only do business in my state or my region, you know, I, I, like, I look at some of these baseball teams have really large banking deals with local banks. That's great, right? But like that shows up on TV here in Phoenix and I can't bank with those companies. So is there max, are you maximizing the value? Maybe, maybe not, you know, it just comes, comes with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the keeping everybody honest is, is really what we're all about. We spend a lot of time um, validating our numbers to people. So a team will use us for valuations and then, you know, send that across to a brand and then the brand calls and says, Hey, I work with you guys over here on this, you know, on the other side of our business, doing our brand health tracking, using the YouGov tools, but wanted to talk to you about this valuation you did for the sports team. You know, who do we talk to? We get them on the phone with our, our valuation team and, you know, come back with, the same, same answers we would do for everybody. So it's, you know, that's the thing. We don't have skin in the game. A lot of these agencies that sell sponsorships and do the evaluation and set the rates and all of this, you know, they're probably overcharging because, uh, you know, the higher they sell it for, the more money they make, obviously, because they get a cut of it. So, you know, if I could sell this deal for 12 million instead of 10, it's an extra $2 million of which I'm getting 10, 15, 20%, whatever it is, I'm going to sell it for 12, right? So that's where, you know, we like to play the impartial third party you know, kind of position on these things. And from the perspective of being now where you are uh, at YouGov, what's one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were working at the Suns and, and being on the team side? Oh boy. I mean, I wish I would have had more perspective uh, to what was going on, right? Like I think when you work for a team, you've got blinders on, um, you know, you are like at the Suns, it was basketball in Phoenix. That's all it is, right? I mean, that's really the, the, the crux of it. It's, it's obviously, it's a, it's a technology play for some, it's a, a activation play for others or a sampling play, but really the platform is basketball and the vocation is games. When you get to the league level, it's, you know, basketball, if you're at the NBA, globally, 
which is awesome. But the one thing that I, I really learned that opened my eyes when I got to RepuCon, which is like how big the sports world actually is, right? Like, you know, I go to a, a football game here in Phoenix and what does the stadium hold? 60,000, 50,000 people, whatever it is, right? But then I go to like the Melbourne Cricket Grounds and it holds 100,000 people. Like that's a whole different type of, of game, whole different type of event. Um, and I, I guess having access to the information of what's happening around the world is really the thing that opened my eyes. And I wish I would have had that, right? I think everybody wants case studies. Everybody wants examples of what's working, what's not working and, you know, whatnot. And I think that over time, proving out success has evolved and, and to stay on the front end of that, I wish I would have had some of the, the knowledge I have now back then around just proving out the pathway to what works and what doesn't work, right? The 1% rule. We, we tried this um, at the Globetrotters and it worked. We tried it at the Suns and it worked. And I'm seeing more and more teams do it. It's like, if I can convert 1% of my fan base that's considering buying your product or your service to becoming a customer, this is the ROI, you know, and then tracking that I think is tremendous as well. I think that's the other area that I wish I would have like been able to go back in time and kick myself a little bit and say, put more tracking studies in place, right? Update your partners more frequently. Teams are not spending money on it. You know, it's not something that teams like to spend money on as research. It's the first thing that gets cut. Um, and it's always questioned no matter what you do. But man, if you're, if you're sitting down looking at, at a sponsor saying, I don't know if it worked or not because I didn't spend 10 grand to, to measure your million dollar partnership, you know, that's, that's a problem. The other big learning too is, um, you know, boy, if you have a partner that's so important to you, $5 million a year, $10 million a year, or even a million dollars a year, you know, you better do some primary research to help, you know, measure that impact, agree on what the success metrics are and, and measure it. Don't rely on syndicated data, right? Like don't rely on consideration or, you know, overall awareness numbers to go up, measure the specific elements of the partnership that are important to those partners. And when I left the Suns, we started doing a little bit of that. Um, we didn't do it at the Globetrotters. I see a lot of teams not doing it. Like teams generally do the minimum. Um, and, and we're seeing we're seeing that change a little bit more. Um, but really, I think, you know, I, I've learned over the years that that tracking and providing back success metrics and taking credit for what you did is is the most important thing. Well, when you think about the brands, right, that that are having to spend the money, they're going to spend money to make sure that their money is being spent well. Right. Mm -hmm. So as the brands are getting smarter and smarter, the, the teams, the leagues, the properties are going to have to catch up at some point. Right. And I think you're seeing that a little bit. But, you know, when you go back to um, what's working, right, the ability to sell something at X rate is one thing. And I and I'll go to your one percent comment because I found that fascinating where, you know, you're trying to learn uh, more about your fan base. Well, there's a whole research component to learning about your fan base. And that's surveys, that's different insights. How do you go about that component to make sure that you, you know, have the right foundation from a fan base, you know, insights perspective? Yeah, listen, I think you, you got to go external to do that. It's not something that, you know, if I'm sitting on the other side of the table from team evaluating a, a you know, pitch as a sponsor, um, I don't want to know about what their season ticket holders think about their sponsors, because those are the most exposed group, right? I mean, maybe not this year, because no one can go to games, but Historically speaking, right, the folks that see the half court promotion, see the on field promotion, see the signage around the building are going to have the highest recall. They're the ones that are there the most, right? I want to know about the TV audience. I want to know about where there's a lot more people obviously watching on TV than go in person. I want to know about my casual fans. I want to know about the group of people that do follow the team and would buy something from a sponsor because they sponsor the team, right? So you've got to go external. You have to subscribe to some sort of syndicated data source to do that. 
um, because you need like the fan non-fan comparison as well. If you're just looking at your season ticket holder base, you know, that's, it is what it is, right? It's season ticket holders. But if you're able to say like, my fans look different than this group of fans over here. So if we're thinking about, you know, my town in Phoenix, why do Diamondbacks fans look different than Cardinals fans, right? So you need a syndicated data source. I think the other missing gap to that is you need the most up-to-date information possible. You know, and that was always my struggle when I was at the Suns is that the tools that were available were old, right? It's the same crap that had been on the market for 15 years, 20 years. It updates once every six months. Like you need something that's a little bit more up-to-date. And I think we see that now this year more than ever. I mean, there's there's a reason why since COVID hit and sports shut down in March for those, those few weeks there that we probably picked up 10 or 15 teams on our U.S. sports business and more around the world. It's because our data updates every single week, right? So like if you went into a pitch now with data from February of last year, I would send you back and say, come back with something more relevant, right? My fan base does not look the same that it did, you know, in February. It doesn't look the same that it did in April. And then you, you throw in all the social change stuff and, you know, everything else that went on. I mean, the whole world got turned on its side. And if you have data that does not include how fans feel about the COVID situation, if you have stuff that does not include how your fans feel about social change, if you do not have data on how your fans feel about these different topics that are going on that are relevant, um, then, then that's a problem, right? Like then you don't have the most up-to-date information. Our profiling database can be a little bit much at times for people to handle because there's like 400,000 different data points in there. And you sit there and you look at it like a deer in the headlights sometimes. You say, I don't even know where to start. You know, I've got a mountain of information on... QSR or auto or whatever it is. I mean, we were on the phone today with a team who's working on a pizza deal right now. And they're like, I want to compare my team to every other team in the NBA. It's like, great, done. We can do that for you. You know, and, and how old is this data? I was like, well, it's last week's data. Like we update every single Thursday. So this was from last Thursday. So later tonight, the new one will come in. If you want to wait till tomorrow, we'll give you this week's data. And so, you know, that's, that's important to have that up-to-date information. Because I, I remember, you know, waking up on release day once every six months. And I would run into the office and I would log in and look and see how many fans we either gained or lost and try and put a narrative around why, and then send that email around to leadership and say, okay, our fan base looks like this now and try and build funky charts that were like thermometers to show here's how we rank compared to our competition. It, it, it's like, it was irrelevant, irrelevant by the time we got it because there was, you know, it was so old. Um, and that's, I think the biggest thing you need to go external. You can't just look at your fans. So you want to have any context to what's happening around you and, and you need up-to-date information. That's the key. No, it's, it's, I mean, to even your point, I mean, there's so much, right. And to, to, to stare at a dashboard and, and have the deer in the headlights is natural, right. You, mm-hmm. you, you have to figure out how, how to use it, where to use it, when to use it. Um, and so as we kind of wrap up, like that's a key component as well. It's one thing to have the data, but to actually know what to do with it is a whole nother thing. Yeah. Yeah. We spend a lot of time helping teams with storytelling. Uh, Chris Todd, who has worked in this business a long time alongside of me, I've worked with him at, uh, this is our third stop together. Now we, we decided coming out of this, this, you know, we have enough chops now to, to do training sessions for people in sports on how to, how to tell stories using data, right? Cause that's what we're doing is we're helping people tell a story, right? There's no one data point that's going to get you a deal. It doesn't happen, but there's a collection of data that tells a story and those are called insights. So how do you draw out insights from what it is that you've got and how do you use that to tell the best story, right? I mean, there's an exercise that we did with the Diamondbacks last year around the insurance category, and we were just playing around with the data. And I did a simple search in our system on just the word insurance. 
And by the time we were done, we had about 20 or 30 different reasons why it made sense for any insurance company to sponsor that team, right? How many people were in the market to switch their insurance? How much they're spending on insurance? Have they ever taken out a claim? How are they, you know, what, how many kids, how many cars, how many houses, boats, like all the things that insurance companies would love. And we hadn't even talked about any of the brands, right? It was just like, here's all the reasons why this makes sense in the world. And storytelling is really the, it's the primary key here, you know? And so when we're able to help people tell a story and that might be the next move that I make eventually, Chris and I could end up, you know, starting our own business and, and doing storytelling for sports through, you know, through data and insights and training the, the teams on how to do it. It's the number one blockage, I think, to team success is that the sales guys and gals are, are typically um, afraid to use data and insights. And, um, you know, the one thing we've heard in a few meetings that's like been pretty funny and flattering and, and upsetting at the same time, because as a sales guy, I get offended by it, but I, I can also laugh at it is the comment that, wow, the system is so easy to use, even our sales team can use it. Um, and, and it's it's true like because- the, Speaking of insurance, that's like uh, Geico, right? So yeah, correct. Man can use it. Yeah, exactly. So easy a caveman can do it. Exactly. I'm like, wait a minute, I, I get offended by this because I'm a sales guy and I can get into the system and use it. But I guess it's true because you do need at every level to be able to tell a story, right? And, and that's the thing. It's like, how do you work with the sales team to be able to get in there and pull a few nuggets out of information that you can drop into a story or drop into a conversation and say, hey, listen, I was playing around in some of our data and I saw that our fans drink more Jack Daniels than anything else. Like, wow, that's really cool. Did you know that? Um, you know, or they eat more Chick-fil-A or they, they do whatever, they drive more Toyotas. You know, those are the, the nuggets that a salesperson should, should be armed with all the time. And then when you have a really big lift, a huge renewal, a big pitch coming up, you know, you bring in the data guys and they can, you know, craft the story and work on it. But really, you know, data visualization, man, if I had a crystal ball and I could go back 10 years, I'd open up a company that did data visualization. That's the number one thing everyone struggles with is how do you, how do you take all this really cool info and make a chart or a slide out of it? You know, and that's the, to me, that's the glaring gap in the market is, is visualization. Um, because we all have cool dashboards and cool things, but when you put it in your template in your deck, it doesn't, doesn't translate very well usually. So the bullet, uh, the bullet point on the slide is, is not necessarily the most telling thing, right? I mean, it, it, it's not. Yeah. Right. It's like, so how do you, how do you story tell, how do you visualize, you know, that, yeah, the bullet points, I just put them in emails now. I don't even put them in the deck anymore because it's like such a waste of time because no, no one reads those either. Right. They go flip right to the back where it's like, what's the price tag to sponsor this team or to buy into this investment. And that's usually where, you know, where things die on the vine sometimes. But if you could take them through the story and go back to the 1% and say, this 1% represents $15 million in business for your company, right? And we're charging you a million dollars to get involved in this. So it's a 15 to one, you know, um, what's it called? 15 to one ROI. How are we going to get there, right? We're going to get there through signage. These signs are all here to support this 1%, you know, these Tickets are all here for you to use, to drive to retail, to do all of these things. These promotions are all here to enforce the message. And at the end of the day, it all leads back to return on investment for the partners, right? And what is that potential return? And then we're going to keep track of this over time. We're going to check in with you every month and tell you how we're trending. These are the metrics that we should all agree mean success that will all lead to $15 million return on investment or whatever that is. That's the storytelling that's missing all over the place. I mean, it's, it's, Shocking. And when you say it out loud, you say that's so simple, but yet people forget to do it. True. I mean, you know, when you think about how fast technology and data has accelerated, right? And it's continuing to accelerate even more with the pandemic uh, tenfold, but the application still has to be there, right? And mm -hmm. so 
you know, obviously from a sports perspective, certainly some catching up to do on, you know, other, other industries or, or, you know, other parts of the world, but um, I love to, to, to take you into some rapid fire questions. Uh, always fun sure. um, to, to wrap up the episode. Favorite Harlem Globetrotters player. Oh boy. Favorite. I mean, of all time, I would say Curly Neal, right. He was a legend. He was, he was the best. Um, and I, I would say, I don't know what cologne he used to wear, but he'd come in the office and it just smelled so great. Um, you know, but of the more recent guys, I had a, a great time with, uh, big easy when, when I was there and he's still there, I think. And uh, special K, uh, Kevin Daly, he was there at one point, the showman row is the most fun and the best to work with sponsors. We didn't talk about this a whole lot, but best part of working in radio from the start. Concerts all, all day long, man. It's like you get paid to go to concerts and meet, uh, meet the artists and hang out. So yeah, I would say the, the live events, the concerts were always the best part about working in radio. Favorite music genre then? Favorite music genre? Um, whatever Coldplay fits into. I guess that kind of crosses over a few different genres because you find- Alternative, pop, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and all pop probably. I mean, listen, I've I've been to my fair share of country shows and uh, even like an air supply concert or two here and there. But I, I would say whatever that Coldplay genre is. Favorite favorite player from the Suns. Um, I would say all, all time favorite player from the Suns would be. Uh, I mean, I was a huge Dan Marley fan growing up, and then Charles Barkley showed up, and I became a huge Barkley fan. I've got a Mark West jersey on my wall because that's pretty niche, and I don't know of anyone else that's got one of those, but. Uh, you know, and then uh, did some work with Cedric Sabalos at one point as well. So there was a few of them that came through there that I would say were, were some of the best. Cedric Sabalos, I think, became the in-arena host at one point. He was, the- yeah. Yeah, he was like the MC uh, in, in the stadiums. Him and I put on a basketball camp a long time ago, right before I, I started working for the Globetrotters. And uh, that was so much fun. That's awesome. Did you ever get to put on the gorilla suit? Uh, I put on the gorilla head, but never the full suit. Now, yeah. but a uh, funny story: my my oldest son, who's twelve now, but when he was like four or five, used to be deathly afraid of like costumes, characters, and all that. And they did this thing where you know you could bring your family down and do Christmas cards with the, the gorilla dressed like Santa. And they they do this in like October, so everyone has their cards in time. And so we walk into the arena and we go downstairs and we're coming out of the tunnel to go onto the court to get our picture taken. And he sees the gorilla. And just turns the other way and starts running and screaming and because he's like scared to death but he starts running around and the whole thing's a giant circle right so he's just running around in a giant circle around the entire arena and screaming his head off um freaking out my wife was in the in the bathroom and she's like why is he screaming so loud like the whole arena could hear him thank god it was only staff but it was yeah it was pretty funny that's great uh, from all the, the different places that you've had to travel right working around the globe of sports uh, favorite mm-hmm. place to travel Favorite place? I love London. I think that London is great, but I would say from a sporting standpoint, either Australia, uh, going to like Melbourne Cricket Grounds or going to a Japanese baseball game um, was really cool in Japan because baseball is so big there. The one the one thing I have not gone to that I really want to is a sumo match. Um, and I figure one, one day when the world reopens, I'll get to go back to Japan and go to a uh, go to a sumo match. But you know, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to go to a lot of really cool things. I went to an FC Barcelona game one time in Barcelona, which was awesome and um, all of those. But yeah, I, I would say sumo in Japan is, is top of the list of things to go and see. But a baseball game in Japan was pretty, pretty special experience. Yeah, the, the I mean, gosh, that's well, A, you stole my next question. But um, I think, you know, in, in terms of you know, watching the, the Japanese baseball games, the amount of energy 
ongoing throughout the game. You might as well be at a soccer match too, as you mentioned, Barcelona. Um, What's one sport that you were surprised that you, you know, maybe liked or, or just hadn't really been to an event before, but, but it attracted you. Uh, NASCAR actually, right? Like coming up in, in, in Phoenix, you know, I wasn't really a big NASCAR fan at all. Um, I was, I was a big basketball fan. I love baseball. I'm like a stick and ball guy. And then I remember going to my first NASCAR race. It was the Daytona 500. And I just thought, wow, this is really cool. And then, you know, getting to go in the pits and, and see everything kind of behind the scenes and you see it more than just cars driving around in a circle. Um, there's a real science behind it, right? And there's like a lot of money pumped into to the competitiveness of this. And um, the training and the engineering and everything that goes into it was absolutely fascinating. And my brother is a, is a big stick and ball guy as well. And, um, you know, coming coming to a NASCAR event for him for the first time, I said to him, you just have to come and see it. Right? You just got just to experience it firsthand. And he was, he was very close-minded about it. And then now he's watching it on TV as well. So I think after you experience it and you see everything that goes into it, it's pretty impressive. You don't realize how fast they go until you're standing right alongside the wall and you realize how fast it goes. I mean, it's fast, loud. There's something about the smell of the the gas and the tires and all of it. I mean, it's like, it's the best. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to go to live. Awesome. Well, Scott, really appreciate the time, thoughts, perspectives, uh, great insights uh, around the world of data within sports sponsorships. Um, Really excited to uh, have had you on and uh, certainly welcome on in the future. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. It was fun.